Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Tony Crescenti, shall we? PIMCO Generalist, Portfolio Manager. He joins us right now. Tony, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Brilliant, as always. Does that Treasury supply matter this week? It has mattered for years in the sense that people always ask, uh, when will uh, things blow up? Uh, And I wrote a book about this, the idea of a Keynesian endpoint. Greece reached a Keynesian endpoint almost a decade ago. In other words, where it couldn't um, stimulate its economy through fiscal stimulus. It couldn't borrow from the world. It had to find another balance sheet. Of course, that was the IMF. ECB uh, and, of course, the rest of Europe. Um, But it has mattered for years in the sense that the U.S., Europe, and Japan haven't been able to uh, engage in transformative activities, which is to say um, infrastructure or investing in people and things. Uh, Instead, monies have gone mostly toward consumption. Think of the recent stimulus plan. It's monies that have been distributed absolutely vital. But is there any major project being created in America today to help uh, the future? You know, I think you're dead on, Tony. I think you're absolutely dead on about the lack of application to long-term projects and to invest in the country, et cetera. Maybe we can see a change of that in the next year. Except in Europe, there's a little bit of that. Oh, yeah, in Europe, okay, I'll give them some credit on that, and I need a fifth tunnel. You know, we need a tunnel to Staten Island, Tony. That's what we need to do do. for you to get quicker to stay. (laughs) I have long said... Instead, we've got the, the, the 56-year-old Verrazano Bridge that yeah. links Brooklyn to Staten Island. He's got to yeah, and quickly, lots and lots of cars. Oh, the show's goodness. falling apart at light speed here with Tony Cassese. <laughs> Tony, I want to ask you a Lisa Bramowitz question, which is really important, actually. I have never, ever, ever cared about treasury supply, full faith and credit supply. I don't care about auctions. And yet now I really have to, don't I? I mean, things have changed. It, it may be, um, but remember also the world population is another angle. World population's aging. What do we do as we age? We move up in the so-called capital structure. We want less and less risk. So there's, there's a lot of money that still flows into bonds despite the, the low yields because sim- people simply want to protect their, their savings. Um, but they, it hasn't mattered. Let me give you summer reading, Tom. Uh, three books real quick, 30 seconds to, uh, that would describe the current situation. Start Let's go back 250 years and use Adam Smith, uh, The Wealth of Nations, the idea of confidence. There's always a need to to bridge the gap between the current situation, which is bad, and the future, which hopefully is good. In The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith said basically people will go out each day and try to, to, to do better for themselves and thereby build the wealth of nations. Then secondly, let's go back about 150 years, Walter Bergad, of course, Lombard Street, liquidity, just lend where it's needed. Uh, Central banks have done that, and that's where all this money's come from. Finally, um, there's been a reduction in uncertainty. Frank Knight, 99 years ago, in a book, uh, Risk, Profit, and and Uncertainty, wrote a book about the idea of uncertainties being so large that people disengage sometimes. Lately, of course, that was the case. March, certainly, there was what they call a Knightian uncertainty period. Now it's more, and it was radical, now it's a little less <clears throat> radical. Yeah. And so that re- re- dissipation of radical uncertainty is helping markets. So liquidity, confidence, and a reduction in radical uncertainties, which driving markets supply doesn't matter right now, so to speak, but probably will matter more in the long end where the pivot point for the yield curve is. 
I will say, if you want. Tony, Tom did read The Wealth of Nations and he promptly took the message and went out and bought jewelry, as we learned this morning. <laughs> I do want to talk about Europe. You're saying that, uh, that the European plan to possibly invest in infrastructure is superior to what we're seeing out of the U.S., where there continues to be gridlock. And yet a lot of investors have piled into the Europe story. Do you think it has gone too far based on the fact that they don't have the tech names to basically support this ah. into the new era? Great point, Lisa. In fact, when you're thinking about investing over the next five years and which equity market to invest in, you probably want to uh, think of think away from Europe and toward the U.S. and Asia, because a lot of the money, about 30 percent of the 750 billion euros in grants and loans that were recently approved by the European Commission will go toward green projects. A lot of those green projects call it, let's say, um, electric vehicle charging station require the use of semiconductors. This will require mining and just technology. So the semi-sector could grow 20% plus uh, for the next five years, but the European companies aren't in that realm like uh, America is and Asia in other parts of the world. So it's not going to be the place where money flows, and it will affect the, the euro over time. In fact, it will keep it from rallying more than it otherwise would because money won't flow into technology there it'll flow elsewhere great point tony let's talk about credit as well lisa's going to love this one last week the high yield issuance we saw 40 percent of it priced with a yield of four percent or less and lisa i know you're going to want to do this so i'll let you do this but the issue that we had yesterday it's okay go ahead you can do this is that even high yield <laughs> okay there is wait hold on a second for everyone who doesn't know what we're talking about <laughs> i don't know what a, we're talking okay, about okay so here's what we're talking about <clears throat> there was a company a junk rated company that sold a bond with a coupon of what just north of two percent is that right two point two point eight five percent i believe, so. 2. 5%, right. I believe. on this, 10 year notes on 10 year notes this idea that it's the lowest ever uh, coupon on a high yield bond all right john they back make to you. aluminum pack Packaging, Tony. <laughs> Huge demand for it right now. I'm trying to understand. It's just below investment grade. What is high yield anymore? Well, of course, it's, it is. It is all relative. But one has to. High yield, of course, is anything below triple B rated. And uh, keep in mind, in 2008 and 2009, triple B rated securities for investors in them, 99 and a half percent of them got their money back. The long, long-term default rate for all securities corporate securities is about one and a half percent, but that includes high yield. So investors are willing to take the risk because they, generally speaking, will get their or his or her or its money back. Uh, but one has to be very scrutinous now. There's been a lot of debt issuance. Tom talked about debt issuance uh, by the Treasury, but it's been also a massive corporate bond issuance. There are lots of Treasury securities outstanding, lots of corporate bonds outstanding. And the stress in 2008 and 2020, they have a common thread that they both ended chaotic, both cycles ended chaotically. Why? Because the system, financial system, the principal to agent system, meaning when there's one seller, they typically go to an agent so who is the go-between, the intermediary. But the intermediary doesn't isn't playing the, the role that it traditionally played, partly because of regulations, partly because of changed business models. And so be careful now because most cycles are probably going to end chaotically. So what an investor wants to do is have a little more liquidity, have yeah. more agility and more resilience in the portfolio. Hey, Tony, great to catch up as always. Tony, Thanks, John, Tom, Lisa. Good great to, to see you. you. Good to see you.
Chicago is not interested in September. Right now, they're interested in August 11th. It has been a challenging summer for Chicago, and we are thrilled to bring you their economist. Diane Swank joins us from Grant Thornton, her work at Michigan, and then Diane Swank for years with Bank One as well. Diane, thank you so much for coming on today. It is shocking to have the family I have from Chicago, to have the grandfather that was in that room in the back of the Art Institute, that's trading room, they've got stuck in the back corner, to see this Chicago in such disarray. Is it just about the slowing and collapsing economy? Well, there's a lot of issues going on, and it's really devastating to see what's happening to Michigan Avenue. Clearly, people are out of work. They have a lot of time, and also the gangs are warring with each other. There's also the looting coming from the gangs because the drug business has dried up over the border, which is all bad on all sides. So, you know, this is very, very hard. It is um, to see this devastation to the city is very rough, but, you know, we hope we can make it through it, and I'm You know, this is getting harder and harder. Diane, the polarization of this is seen in Washington in a stimulus that is uh, halted, was the word I saw today, in the national press. What would be your message as the lead economist of Chicago, with great respect to the Federal Reserve of Chicago? Diane, what would be your message to the politicians in Washington? Well, I think it'd be the same as Charlie Evans, the leader of the Chicago Fed, and that is this is now um, life and death. We are talking about a lapse in benefits that is already triggering food insecurity, homelessness, and it's not going to be repaired anytime soon. The governors, both Republican and Democrat, said they cannot do what the president has offered. They need to get back to the table and get a deal done. And every minute that goes by is compounding the losses. You can't, as a business, you can maybe get a loan to defer the fact that you don't have cash coming in the door for a little bit, although many businesses are shutting down. But for a family, especially for um, households in the black and Hispanic community, this is just insult to injury. It's leaving people without money at a critical time and leaving them on the streets. We're talking about food insecurity and homelessness, the likes of which we've not seen since the Great Depression. This, Dan, is the difference between the human approach to economics, which is the disparity beneath the aggregate figures, the headline numbers and the people that make up those statistics, and a market that is just focused on the top line, progressive, positive improvement over the last several months. Do you think we can maintain the latter given what's happening with the former? Well, you know, the dissonance is really getting to be deafening between the financial markets, Wall Street and Main Street. And I think one of the things the financial markets aren't taking into account is the compounding effect that this is having. We're talking about an economy where you're shuttering a lot of businesses, at least a half a million businesses have shut down permanently at this point in time in the U.S. That taking away of dynamism, consolidation in a few small businesses, not only um, undermines the innovation of the U.S. economy, entrepreneurship, but the job generating ability on the other side. And it's really notable that we've had trouble getting out of even the most mild recession since the 1990s with job generation. Remember the 1990-91 recovery was called 
called the jobless recovery. Coming out of the Great Recession, a lot of people thought we'd get a big bounce. Instead, we didn't because we did not do transfers to state and local governments. We've not learned our lessons. And Washington needs to get back to the table if they want to get out of what is now metastasizing into a much more vicious cycle, not just temporary COVID-related losses. Well, Dan, the administration believes that we can have a V-shaped recovery. I understand that concept is just a channel changer for many people now. They hear it, they turn over. And I'm wondering from your perspective whether we're closer to a W given the direction of travel at the moment. We're closer to a double dip, which would be a W, although, you know, we're talking about one quarter of positives. If we just hold at the June levels on retail sales and consumer spending, then we'll have a very strong third quarter. That's kind of a false narrative because that's really plateauing and not showing any momentum over the summer. We could actually lose some momentum in August and September, given the lapse in $18 billion a week that consumers were getting in terms of enhanced unemployment benefits to support spending in the U.S. economy. So as we go into the fourth quarter, when you've got all the seasonals, you know, Halloween, the second largest holiday of the year, no football season, these college towns really scraping by, having to come back to class, which could foment the increase in, in virus spread, see a very hard second wave, you very easily could dip back into the negative in the second and first quarter until a vaccine is available. And we can't just wait for a vaccine. We've seen other countries be able to manage their um, virus so that their economy can reopen, manage the virus, get the economy going. The health of our individual people, our population, really is the driver of the health of the economy. Diane, there's been a shift in narrative, and you're really speaking to this from this recession can be really short, very deep, but short. And we can pull out the other side to this is a typical recession. It's going to be very difficult to get back to a normal or pre-COVID level of unemployment. Right now, Mark Zandi of Moody is saying that the unemployment rate in the U.S. probably closer to 14 percent. Do you agree? And how long will it take to get back to more normalized levels? Well, that's a great question, and we've been doing a lot of simulations on this. It's really hard because it's, um, one, dependent on whether or not Congress will just backfill the hole that we're creating by COVID-related losses, which we need at least a $1.5 trillion just now. Without That's without stimulus on the other side of this. If we get $1.5 trillion with the delays that we've seen, we won't get back out of this on a level of economic activity until mid-2022, the second quarter of 2022. That's a long time time. And it's not this snapback that many had hoped for. And that's with some catch up in 2021 as we try to get back online. But we're really undermining our ability, our potential to grow on the other side of this. As I've often said, this is like, you know, COVID is the iceberg for us not to be the Titanic. We need lifeboats with supplies in the water this time around to traverse these much, much deeper COVID tainted waters than anyone expected for longer because we did not manage the virus itself. Yeah, there's an increasingly painful story for people who don't have their jobs, and there's increasing fear among people who do that they'll see their wages cut or their jobs cut. And I'm wondering, Diane, in the United Kingdom, uh, we saw data this morning that showed wage deflation for the first time since records began since 2001. Are we going to see wage deflation in the United States in a meaningful way? It's a great question. I mean, some of that's because of the people who are employed are actually not employed and being paid part of their income. So that's why we're seeing it. So it's a bit of a statistical residual of the unemployment that's actually in um, the UK. But I think it's very important to understand that 
um, we saw wage cuts at the onset of this crisis. <clears throat> Never see that before. Nominal wage cuts because people thought it was temporary. And what firms did is they cut white collar wages in order to preserve their jobs, to not lose their people after coming off three and a half percent unemployment. What's becoming more clear now is that could one will likely see a repeat of wage cuts and unpaid leaves, which is a wage cut as well. As we go into the fall, we've already seen several firms start to call for that. And that could further suppress wages in a way that we don't usually see in a recession. That whole sticky wage theory gets thrown out in a COVID recession. Yeah. And this is becoming metastasizing. I also think it's important to note that white collar and high wage losses, we always focus on the low wage losses because this is largely low wage, but the low, the high wage um, percentage losses in employment are now approaching those of the Great Recession. I mean, Diane, this is just extremely important. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the labor tumult in the com country. Every kid in America at gunpoint has to read Upton Sinclair, uh, The Jungle. And you read about the Chicago labor economy of 150 years ago. Are we going back to the jungle, this atomization of our labor economy where we have the haves and a massive have-nots in America that on a real basis can't keep up? Well, unfortunately, we're already there at three and a half percent unemployment. What COVID revealed was um, the inequalities that existed in the U.S. economy in an extraordinary way and then ex exacerbated those inequalities. And the, the idea that we've got, you know, families that can't feed their children for a week right now in the United States of America because of a health crisis. This is now metastasizing into a humanitarian crisis and taking on a different kind of nature of a self-feeding negative cycle that we don't have to do. The reason it's worthwhile to go through these scenarios, the downside scenarios, is you can see how you could stop it from happening. There are still ways we could mitigate the spread of, the, of COVID, especially as we open up college and older students are highly contagious, we have to mitigate that going into the fall so that we don't have to keep as much of our economy closed down. We need a nationwide testing effort. That We need that testing funding that would be in a national, um, the trillion, and, trillion plus plan by Congress. Both sides agree on that. I don't understand why we can't get move forward on testing when that would be, we're still chasing a moving target in that. So there are ways that we could escape this becoming worse situation, but we need First, we need to act today. Really, yesterday, the clock has already run out for too many people. We yep. need to get those lifeboats out there to help the economy. But I think it's really important to note that this is not where we want to go, and we have a choice. Diane, we're really lucky to have you on the show with us this morning. Thank you. Diane Swan, Grant Thornton, Chief Economist. Henrietta Trace knows that Veda Partners, their director of economic policy, is that Mr. Meadows hasn't talked to Ms. Pelosi in a very long time. So we'll go to her right now on the silence in Washington. Henrietta, with all your Washington experience, how do you break silence? Uh, you break silence with time and external pressure. So I would love to see, you know, unemployment data reports come out every single day. I'd like to see a GDP report every single day. That kind of macro push 
really helps move the needle. I think, unfortunately, we have seen a lot of action behind the scenes in D.C., and it's come from Republican campaign donors and major base advocates like the Club for Growth or the Heritage Foundation. And they've encouraged the Republicans to oppose reaching a big deal with Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. And so the action you're referring to has already taken place, and it's resulted in, ironically enough, no action. Um, and that is the preferred outcome for the Republican conference. That's where we are today. Um, there is a sense of ebullience on the Republican side that I haven't seen in many months, just talking with folks that I'm close with in the Senate or the House or the administration over the last maybe four days. This is the happiest I've seen them in several months because they were able to, put, to buck and punt on a $2 trillion package that none of their base donors really wanted to see. So to talk about breaking the logjam now is actually to miss that right now Republicans view this uh, state of affairs as having won. So it's going to take quite a bit, and I think it's going to be at least three weeks into September before we get meaningful wow. negotiations going on. Three weeks into September, Henrietta. Yeah, well, let's just walk through it. I mean, this week is nothing. Everybody's gone. Uh, everybody's in uh, the DNC next week, the RNC the week after. Then it's Labor Day. So you're already at September 8th. It's going to take them at least two weeks to have a conversation that yields a $1 trillion package, let alone a $2 trillion package. And you're looking at expired unemployment insurance benefits, even if states go through the $44 billion in FEMA funds that you just referenced. So we're going to be right back at this table uh, in mid to late September, any way you cut it. Do you think there's a chance we just don't get a deal? I think the chance has grown. My odds of a deal being reached dropped from 85% to 75%. I am already hearing some tidbits of what negotiations might ultimately look like here. Um, for instance, the payroll tax piece that is so unworkable for employers and requires that they... <clears throat> you know, withhold or, or not withhold any of the payroll tax, um, that is super complicated just because eventually people are going to have to pay that back. The president doesn't have the authority to change tax codes. So um, what they're already considering is providing some sort of a payroll, excuse me, a stimulus check in September that eliminates the payroll tax suspension that the president just put out in his executive action over the weekend. So they're already trying to find workarounds to the stuff that the president rolled out on Saturday. And that does point to a deal. Um, and so I'm optimistic that we will get one again, 75% odds, but that is down versus 85%, which was, you know, as close to certainty as you can be in DC, that we would have gotten a package in the last few weeks. Obviously, the um, actions of the political calculations, the elections and the Republican base really drove a lack of progress on a deal. And again, that's considered right now a win for the Republican conference, in particular the White House. What kind of concessions are the Republicans willing to make on state and municipal funding? Um, not the ones that Democrats have asked for um, specifically, and I've spoken with Democratic leadership uh, on Sunday. They are going to be looking for election security and post office security <laughs> and um, more funding for hours and a rollback of the regulatory reforms that have been recently instituted there. That's their primary focus on the state side. And I have not seen any give from Republicans there. So I know that's going to be well, a major sticking point. Henrietta, that goes right to where I wanted to go. Give by Republicans, or for that matter, give by Democrats. We at Bloomberg struggle each day to try to be impartial. Let's look at the Republicans. Are the Senate majority Republicans on the same page is the House Minority Republicans. 
That's an interesting question. Um, I don't I don't know that it much matters just because the Senate majority is the majority party and the Republicans in the House can get rolled. They're not going to need to provide many votes for this anyway. Um, I would anticipate somewhere in the 20 to 30, 40, if we're lucky, Republicans in the House are going to ultimately vote for this package. Um, and I think the sticking point we saw for Majority Leader McConnell is that he's having a really tough time corralling his conference. Um, but I am reminded of something that I've heard from Majority Leader McConnell's office for years now, which is that winning has a tendency to really pull the caucus together. So now that they have won on this, you know, bucking Pelosi event, I think it should create some goodwill and actually help Majority Leader McConnell try to find some middle ground for a package in September. Um, so that sort of idea that winning begets winning will help smooth over some tensions, could go a long way to helping Kevin McCarthy, uh, the, the minority leader in the House, who has already come under some sort of political challenges as a result of potentially reaching another CARES Act 2.0 deal with Speaker Pelosi. So I think this idea that winning begets winning is something that we should be monitoring. It may make it easier for Majority Leader McConnell to pull aside his votes from the House Republican Conference and also the Senate Republican Conference to make them feel as though they're in the majority again. Um, and that's also a refrain I heard a lot from Republican Senate staff this weekend. Look, we're in the majority. We have the White House. We have the Senate Republicans um, in the majority. We're going to be the ones that run this show. So we want unemployment at 300, 400 max. Uh, we don't want these massive aid to state packages going out. You cannot have any policy riders in here. Um, you really got to recognize that you're in the minority. And of course, Speaker Pelosi knows that in D.C., being in the minority is actually a much more powerful position. So it's this dichotomy that we are now obviously going to have to wait another five or six weeks to get through. Um, but it is good news for the Republican conference that they see this as a win uh, because it may yeah. make Majority Leader McConnell's job easier down the road. Henrietta, don't be a stranger. Come back soon. It's great to catch up with you. Henrietta Trace there of Vader Partners, the Director of Economic Policy Research. We're going to talk here at Taiwan in the Strait with Admiral Stravitas, James Stravitas, joining us with his wonderful books. I can't say enough about him. But first, Admiral, I need to talk about your wonderful essay on Brent Scowcroft, who I was a huge, huge fan of. I met him and interviewed him a number of times. And I, I want to go right to the majesty of a world transformed. He and Jim Baker helped President Bush transform the world. How did they do that? What did Scowcroft do to assist America to end the Cold War? First and foremost, he recognized that the greatest comparative advantage the United States has and will always have, Tom, is our network of allies, partners, and friends. And I think it would have been easy for President Bush, the first President Bush, to sort of spike the football at the end of the Cold War and say, America uber alles. That really would have been the, quote, America first moment, unquote. Brent Scowcroft took it in the opposite direction. He said, all of this, the victory in the Cold War, was a team effort, an allied effort. And so I think, practically speaking, both he and Secretary of State Jim Baker uh, right. helped energize those allies, partners, and friends. That was the secret sauce. His, his national security advisor, he was someone who had worn the uniform 
How I, I talked to Ambassador Bolton about this the other day. We're, we're efforting Mr. Bolton right now to speak on uh, General Scowcroft. But why is it different for NSA to be someone who wore a uniform versus not? Uh, there are certainly examples on both sides of very strong national security advisors. But I, for one, believe that having put on the cloth of the nation, as the saying goes, and made that set of sacrifices. And don't forget, Brent Scowcroft started life as a fighter pilot, had a terrible crash that put him in the hospital. He knew sacrifice. He knew what it meant to order men and women into combat. That's an important quality. So, Admiral, you know, you mentioned the America First policy, which seems to be uh, the vogue right now. How, how do you think General Scowcroft kind of would think of that, I guess? I guess what's his view of that? <laughs> Well, I know what he thought because I, I had a chance to talk to him about it. He was one who, A, was always humble, especially in moments of victory. So I think he disliked the, the kind of implied and overt arrogance that comes out of that. Number two, General Scowcroft was very analytic. He didn't let his emotions run away with things. He was all about realpolitik. And number three, as Tom and I were just talking about, Paul, um, he understood better than anybody that uh, we can't just walk away from allies, partners, and friends. It's a huge mistake. So he was not a fan of uh, the America First theory of the case. If you're with us, James Trevitas, we welcome all of you worldwide. Uh, Admiral, there there was a point where the Kitty Hawk uh, became a pawn in the harbor of Hong Kong, and all of this devolved down to the Formosa Strait at its narrowest, I believe, 81 miles. Do we need to waltz waltz Kitty Hawks through the Taiwan Strait? Do we need to give a, a larger presence with our aircraft carriers now? I think the way to picture this, Tom, is, yeah, it's about 100 miles between Taiwan and the mainland of China. And, uh, yes, we need to operate our ships there, uh, not just our aircraft carriers, but our destroyers, our cruisers, our submarines. And here's why, because those are international high seas. And if we start acting like, oh, well, we're nervous about doing that, or we might confront China there, that's the wrong approach. These are high seas, international waters, and we have to demonstrate that under international law, or we give voice to Chinese claims of ownership in the South China Sea. So, yes, we need to, uh, I wouldn't say waltz the ship through, Tom. I was I being non excuse me. <laughs> I have not worn the uniform, as you can I tell, folks. I was going to say, this is why you probably wouldn't be the national security advisor. <laughs> this but, would be uh, true. Bolton told me that the other day as well. <laughs> well, the correct term is we should steam our there ship. There we That's go. That's right. That's <laughs> I'll use that next time I embarrass myself. So, Admiral, just <laughs> just broadly speaking, Admiral, you know, give us your assessment of kind of where we are. We've had so much uh, rhetoric between the U.S. and China over the last week or two with embassies being closed and consulates and, and the like. Kind of just give us your thoughts about how things are developing there. Hey, I wish I had good news, but I don't. It's a okay. deteriorating set of relationships. Uh, the political cycle here in the United States, unfortunately, both on the Trump side, but also from the Biden campaign, you're going to see them use China like a pinata between now and yeah. November and just beat the hell out of it. Um, hopefully, post-election, we can start repairing things. We need to confront China where we have to about things like the South China Sea claims, which are preposterous. But we need to find ways to cooperate with China. We want to get a trade deal done eventually with China. I think post-election is where we have a chance of doing that. But right now, deteriorating relationship, yellow light 
flashing. Uh, Admiral Stevens, one final quick question here. What are the distinctions of Susan Rice that Vice President Biden should consider? Um, ready for the job on day one. She has spent a huge amount of time in the Oval. Um, don't forget, she was an ambassador to the United Nations. She understands the international world extremely well. And in all of my interactions, both with the vice president and with Susan Rice in the Situation Room, in the Oval Office, there's a comfort factor there that I think mm-hmm. are very significant. He'll think about all those things. And probably she's read the leader's bookshelf as well. James Stavitas, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Admiral, greatly appreciate your comments there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.